Today's TribCast is presented by NRG. NRG is changing the way people think about and use energy. Find out how at NRG.com. And the Office of Public Insurance Council. Confused about what insurance coverage is right for you? Try OPIC's policy comparison tool at opic.texas.gov. Texas talking oh, What was that that you said? Texas talking Hi, this is Lois Kim, Executive Director of the Texas Book Festival. Today, we announce the dates of this year's fest, October 27th and 28th, and we can't wait to see you in downtown Austin this fall. And we can't wait to partner again with the Texas Tribune on their fest. Hey, when are they announcing those dates? Enjoy this week's TribCast. Here's your host, Patrick Svitek. Thank you. This is Patrick Svitek here on the second Wednesday in January with your Texas Tribune TribCast, our weekly podcast about the biggest stories in Texas politics. I'm joined today by executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Investigative reporter Jay Root. Happy New Year. And reporter Alexa Urda. Hello. We'll be taking your questions via Facebook and Twitter, so please send them our way, and we will uh, try to get to, the, to all of them, or as many as we can. All right, so the first topic, we're going to reach back to uh, late last week when we reported that Chris Evans, who's a uh, primary challenger to state representative J.D. Sheffield, uh, pleaded... We'll see how long through this <laughs> intro. Let me get through the facts first. <laughs> we'll get through the, the story first. Pleaded guilty in 2001 uh, to making a pipe bomb. He was given eight years probation and ended up serving half that. Uh, by way of explanation, he told us that growing up, he, quote, blew up tree trunks recreationally, <laughs> and, quote, uh, and, and if he's elected, he would work to, quote, get rid of dumb laws that hassle country kids who aren't hurting anyone. Amen. Needless to say, our readers had a lot of thoughts on this story, which I wrote. <laughs> so I guess we can uh, discuss this. Is this a real political problem or just a problem for, for Mr. Evans? This is a Jay, Texas I know you problem. Have some Resident country <laughs> this is a problem of the Texas countryside. <laughs> I, I, I'll be honest with you. The very first phrase that came into my mind when I read this was, there by the grace of God go I. <laughs> because I made a lot of pipe bombs as a kid. I did. I mean, everybody in, in my, you know, this is like something Salt, that Peter we, and sugar flavor. And, and gasoline no, bombs. No, we, we got the we got gunpowder that you would buy for like reloading shotgun shells, and and I had a friend who was a welder, and he got this oil filled pipe, and he would like weld caps on the end of it, and we would drill a little hole in it and put the gunpowder in it, and then buy this fuse out of like Soldier of Fortune magazine. And, <laughs> this is why Jay Root yeah. can't run for office in Texas right and, now. And you know, I, I'm told the statute of limitations. I hope I'm not wrong about this. Has which, passed. Which one of you had the subscription right to Soldier of Fortune? Well, when we were like, you know, I don't know, 16 or something, my friend's dad caught us doing, it and he was like, uh, "Do you realize like you could blow yourselves up?" And so that was the very last bomb that we made. But I will say that like I did blow up a tree stump with that very last bomb. So sure. this is a thing. I blew up a toilet with a cherry bomb. This right. is a thing. Okay. So did John Sharp, right? Yeah. Remember that? Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> and Rick Perry. Yeah, we were we had a bet on whether a cherry bomb would really blow up a toilet, and yeah. we ended up having to buy somebody a toilet. So it right. did. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Yes, How it does. How much yeah. did it blow it up? Don't, though. don't try this at home, kids. It goes down into the drain pipe and goes, and there's you know shards of pottery all over the bathroom, and somebody's mother screaming in the and bathroom. yelling. Where did you think you were? We're gonna find a toilet. I thought you just had like a spare toilet. <laughs> no, we just turned out in a field. No, it was really loud too inside the house. Yeah. 
Some of Evan's supporters suggested this could help him, or they're, they're counter to right. the story. I don't think. I mean, as a, politi- as a political matter, I mean, to, you know, <laughs> to try to be serious to about this for a yeah, exactly. yeah. I don't think this hurts him. Well, how old was he though when when he was doing this? That's he was in his. He uh, was in his twenties. The incident yeah. was in the late nineties. He was in, he was in his early twenties. He wasn't indicted until two and a half years after the incident, so he served the probation. That's a little old to be he recreational. Wasn't a kid. <laughs> right. that, that was what caught my attention because I was like, I don't know, sixteen when I did my last one. As yeah, I recall, 14, 14, 15 is your prime. Yeah, tree stump right. blowing up. Yeah, period. I was a little a little on the late end, but I I did get, yeah. I did learn my lesson. And so some readers pointed out there was in the indictment language a list of some of the ingredients in the pipe bomb, and some some readers pointed out that yes, maybe blowing up tree tree stumps is, is common in rural Texas, or at least among a certain age. Um, that some of those ingredients were a little bit uh, severe, or well, he had like more, BBs yeah, in it or something like that, than, right? You know, just playing around, right? So. Yeah, like, you know, putting in nails or something like that, or, yeah, that's not, <laughs> yeah. we didn't do yeah. that. Right. Yeah. Some, some folks stuff. did point out that this is the same House district that elected Sid Miller a number of years ago, so uh, to give you a, a feel maybe of the political I don't identity. think, I, you know, I don't think in that part of the state this is going to be a problem. Erath County. Also, did, did the opponent like sell, send out mailers saying you don't want to vote for this guy? He made pipe bombs and he well, you're gonna get a you're gonna get a J root reaction out of half of the voters. They're gonna go, hey, <laughs> so I did, did that. I, yeah. I mean, you are. You're gonna, you know, I, you know, maybe the only positive yeah. of this is, you know, he, you know, that's not how you make a pipe bomb. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what do you make of his his contention or his argument that once he gets to the Capitol, he's going to work to get rid of these quote dumb laws? Is that is that a, a pr- well? The thing that I thought was interesting about that as well was that wasn't he busted on the on federal charges? So it was an ATF the, the ATF right. I believe right. investigated. Yeah, him. there were a number of law enforcement agencies that were involved at some <laughs> point, and <laughs> it was certainly a serious incident. And, and taken seriously at the time, regardless of, of what the explanation later was. Yeah, I mean, the legislature is powerless to, to change federal law. So. Well, and even if it wasn't, I mean, in a country with a 16-year-old Department of Homeland Security, you're not going to get laxer laws on how to make a bomb at home. Right. You know, that's just, we're not headed that direction. Okay. And is that the right message to, to say we need more laws? <laughs> I don't know, you know, yeah. more, or, or like to hey kids, this month yeah. in Boys Life magazine, an exemption bombs. for pipe bombs. I don't know. <laughs> All right, everyone got the pipe bomb jokes out of them. Can we, we're no, we, yeah. we could return to this. I think we're done. Yeah. We may come back to it. Um, a reminder to our, our Facebook viewers: please uh, post your questions in the comments, and we'll try to get to them. We'll, we got a few coming in uh, right now. Uh, one of them. Uh, I don't know if it's a question. The Dems have a candidate for gov, question mark. Uh, they do, and we'll get to that later in the conversation. <laughs> there are 10 Democrats uh, running for governor. Um, moving on to our, our second topic, though. Jay, you had a, a very interesting story uh, just this week about conflicts of interest uh, surrounding a Texas transportation commissioner. This seems like kind of a, a classic story of someone in Austin wearing multiple hats and those lines uh, maybe getting blurred. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you learned? Yeah, so Victor Vandergriff uh, comes from a family of auto dealers. His great-grandfather uh, started in the business in the 20 or 30s, and um, he has been a, he's a two-time gubernatorial appointee. Governor Rick Perry appointed him to the Texas Department of Motor Vehicles Board um, in 2009. Um, and then to the Texas Department of Transportation in 2013. And what I discovered was, <clears throat> based on a tip, was that uh, Victor Vandergriff was, was coming to Austin on TxDOT's dime, basically. They were paying for his travel and lodging. And then he also would, while he was here, 
uh, do other things uh, that was related to his private gig, which was um, once he joined the Texas DMV board, he became a consultant for, at the time, the Van Tile Auto Group, which is a big private uh, chain of dealerships. Mm-hmm. They were sold to Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway Automotive in 2015. And the first thing I noticed was <clears throat> when I started doing research was that his name shows up on a list of uh, witnesses testifying in favor of a bill that, uh, for on behalf of Berkshire Hathaway, that would have created sort of a small level exemption for Berkshire Hathaway because, and my interest in this is that auto laws are super protectionist and complicated, but they favor a certain group of people over another group of people. Um, and, and so I'm interested in, in that, that area where business regulation and politics come together. Um, and so I find, I'm, I'm like, well, what's Victor Vandergriff, a TxDOT commissioner, uh, doing? You know, I, I figured he would, you know, when he would show up on the witness list that he would, he would identify himself mm-hmm. as Victor Vandergriff, TxDOT commissioner, but he was represented, at, he was uh, listed as a representative of Berkshire Hathaway Automotive. So that piqued my interest, and I started comparing his travel vouchers with TxDOT to some of his private activities on behalf of Berkshire Hathaway and previous to that, Van Tile, which Berkshire Hathaway bought. Um, and basically found a lot of uh, overlap mm-hmm. where he was coming here. Now, I, I, you know, to his credit, he was very open with me. When you brought him this information. When I yeah. brought him this information and he copped to it and he basically said, you know, you're right. I didn't really think about this. Um, I don't think it's a violation of the law. And as far as I can, I, I was not able to determine whether or not there was any violation. Um, you know, as far as I know, there was not in terms of what he did with travel, because the law basically says, according to TxDOT, is that as long as you aren't causing the, you know, the expenditure of additional dollars, then it's okay. Although he did reimburse, he decided to reimburse because there were times when he came a day early and TxDOT paid for it. And he was here not for TxDOT, basically, but for his own private business. The other problem he had was that, um, never do the, does the phrase Berkshire Hathaway Automotive appear mm-hmm. on his personal financial disclosures. Of course, it's almost impossible to get in real trouble with the Texas Ethics Commission. All you have to do mm-hmm. is go and say, oh, uh, I didn't realize this. I went and corrected my this. Bad. And yeah, my bad. And right. Or pay I'm, a $200 yeah. fine and nothing happens. Or, uh, right. I mean, it's, it's, it's largely toothless agency when you get right down to it. Um, but the other thing that I really found, besides the fact that here you have a multiple hat wearing and you've got these reimbursements because there's a recognition that this was blurring the lines inappropriately and, and the disclosure, is that there's sort of a Forrest Gump aspect to Victor Vandergriff. He, like, he just <laughs> turns up everywhere. He's he just, a similarly compelling name. <laughs> well, he, he just turns up everywhere, you know? Like, um, I have this great memo here that he wrote. He, lo- he wrote a ton of memos, but he wrote this, this memo to Senate aides, he had already left the Texas DMV board, so he was 10 days into his new gig at the TxDOT as a TxDOT commissioner, and he's writing to these uh, Senate aides to uh, Senator Nichols, who at the time was chairman mm-hmm. of the Transportation uh, Committee, and and he says, you know, hey, I, I, you know, and he, he's sort of holding himself out as still a representative of Texas DMV. And so Dan Patrick gets a, a, a cameo here, and he says, in an effort to keep what little harmony there is in this dealer manufacturer arena, Texas DMV agreed to let the dealers, listen to that for a second, Texas DMV, a state agency, 
agreed to let the dealers, the auto dealers, the very powerful auto dealers, have a senator of their choosing pick up the bill in the Senate. This was a bill that the dealers had agreed to that would address like what happens when you have lemon law disputes. The dealers were concerned about other amendments being placed on the bill and not having a direct voice to discuss them. My understanding is that Senator Patrick has agreed to this assignment. So, and, and Patrick did in fact carry this bill on behalf of the auto dealers who have given him hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, a lot of money. You look at sure. how much money both Greg Abbott and Dan Patrick have gotten from the auto dealers, and it's a lot of dough. And and so, you know, Patrick's office said, hey, this was a bipartisan bill. It wasn't controversial, so what's the big deal? But that's actually very interesting because a lot of times it's those bipartisan bills because these dealers, they, they spread their money around. Sure. It, it just shows yeah. the— They're involved the, in local politics all across the state. Very influential right. political players. Right, right. And, and, so, and so what does that mean to the average Texan? That's why you can't buy a Tesla yeah. in Texas <clears throat> because— right. That would mean that that you bought directly from a manufacturer, and that's the big no-no. You know, you have to buy. If you've ever had to buy a new car, if you've ever bought a new car, you probably spent a lot of time at a dealership. I'm guessing you spent several hours, right? Well, you know, in Brazil and other places, you can just go online and order a car. So yeah. that that was sort of my interest in this whole thing. Sure. And I really thought that the Victor Vandergriff appearance in these, you know, and there, Abbott, Greg Abbott gets there's there's a mention of Greg Abbott in the story as well, where um, both uh, Vandergriff and another one of his appointees, Laura Ryan, who works for Gulf States Toyota, yeah. huge player in uh, auto dealer world and in giving campaign contributions right. to politicians. Dan Freak, Dan Freak and, yeah. is head of uh, Gulf States Toyota, founder, uh, yeah. his father was. I was going to ask Ross a anyway, question for yeah, you on this. Where, where do you rank this incident or this conflict of interest on the spectrum of what we occasionally see in Austin, which is people wearing multiple hats well, and you ethical know, questions being raised? Like Jay said, this one doesn't have, I mean, there's not like an obvious place where this crossed a legal line. Right. Um, you know, you can smell it from here. Um, and it, I'm interested to see if Vandergriff can hang on to his appointed seat after after the story and after after all of this stuff. You know, it's obvious from what he told Jay that he didn't see necessarily that he was doing anything wrong. And what that really points to is this is an everyday sort of conflict in Austin. I mean, it's, you know, it may be attenuated a little bit. There's more money involved in it. But this is the kind of thing that's like you catch somebody do it and they go, what? Everybody's doing this. Right. And, and it's sort of like <laughs> this is a corner everybody has cut. If this was grass, there wouldn't, you know, this would be a footpath by now. So right. people and, have traveled it. Yeah. And I think what, uh, you know, I, I got a tip and so I knew where to look. I was able to compare the records, and, and there was, I mean, Vandergriff wrote a lot of emails. And so, you know, a, lo a lot of things were put in writing about this, like like this thing with Senator, then Senator Patrick, now Lieutenant Governor Patrick, that you normally don't see in writing. But it, it sort of pulls back the curtain on the power of the auto dealers. You know, I mean, right. going back to Gene Fondren, who was right. the head of the Auto Dealers Head's Association for years and years, and Bob Bullock, who at one point was... Uh, head of the wasn't he a lobbyist yeah, yeah. for the auto dealers? Yeah, right. and, and he so, and Bondren were deskmates in the house in the late fifties. Yeah, and and I mean they're really there's a continuum there where they're still extremely powerful. Right, and it's one of those things that's it's not a sexy deal, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, again, and and people who've listened to the podcast have heard me talk about this liquor and cars, you know. <laughs> there's a, that's where we talk a about lot that all the time. Yeah, that's yeah. where uh, that's true. There's all this protective law, <laughs> not just law. in the podcast, right? There's all this protective protective law. You can't. Buy 
buy this at that kind of place. You can't buy a car on Sunday. You can't buy a Tesla online. I mean, all of those kinds of things protect the incumbents. The liquor industry is the same way, you know. If your bar runs out of Budweiser, you can't go across the street to a 7-Eleven and buy a case of Bud and put it behind the bar. I mean, there's just a million weird laws like that, each designed to protect a little corner of this. This is also, you know, in terms of influence in Austin, this is also the kind of thing that would um, be impacted if this Lyle Larson bill had passed during the session. You remember this where Larson had a pay-for-play bill. But basically said if you give more than $2,500 to a governor, that governor is barred from appointing you to a Texas board or commission. The governor's office went bananas about it. And, and to be fair to Abbott, this is a longstanding pro, pro, uh, practice that, that existed long before him. It's been known for a long time. If you give a ton of money, you can be an A&M regent. If you give some money, you get on TxDOT. If you give just a little money, you get a you know a smaller board. Cosmetology. Um, yeah, <laughs> something. But you know, it's the kind of pay-for-play stuff. And you know, why do people, why are people interested in serving on boards that don't pay anything and don't do anything? Well, because it gives them access. Right. All right. Just a, a quick reminder: if you're if you're listening to this Tribcast on iTunes, please take a second to review us and subscribe. Here's a recent review from Sarah one nine nine. Nine nine nine. <laughs> That's you. It's a Herman Cain uh, cameo. And though I'm a native Texan, I now live outside the state and miss it daily. I love listening to the Tripcast to reduce my homesickness and keep up on politics that influence the whole nation. Uh, thank you very much, Sarah. One nine 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 nine. All right, <laughs> moving on. Alexa, you hosted an event Tuesday with uh, lawmakers about the ongoing conversation at the Capitol about sexual harassment and misconduct, how to combat it. Uh, what did we hear from these lawmakers and, and what were some of the, the takeaways on your end? I mean, I think we didn't hear anything that we probably haven't heard in the weeks following reports, both on pretty serious allegations about what happens at the Capitol, but also just severe flaws in the policy that are supposed to help combat this or at least offer some sort of protection for the women or anyone who's trying to report or address this. I think. When when I sort of got off of that stool and thought about what we could even take from that panel was sort of the continued mystery over what's actually going to happen. I think the fact that we're looking at this now is different than if we had reported on this a year and a half ago and then maybe there wouldn't even have been any sort of real scrutiny of what's in place. But I think, you know, the House moved quickly to revise its policy. The Senate hasn't done that yet, but there's still no clear indication that anything will actually happen in terms of forceful investigations, any sort of sanctions against those who are actually committing these, you know, sexual harassment or any sort of other assault or misconduct. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know that that's actually going to change. And if you right. if you take what happened on that stage between lawmakers as proof of, you know, really of how folks will deal with this when they come back to Austin, I don't know that they're going to come to agreement on anything. Do, do you sense that, uh, how do you gauge the urgency at the moment? It seems like at least at the national level, this conversation has cooled off maybe just a, a touch. I mean, are you still sensing an urgency at the state level to tackle this issue per, the same as it was several weeks ago? I think it depends on who you talk to. I think there are people like Donna Howard and Linda Coop who say they still want to look at this. They still think that there are changes that need to be made. But then there are places like, you know, if you look at the Senate, which is moving at a, a much slower pace in the House, which at least revised its policy, um, you you kind of already feel it losing a little bit of steam. And when you think about, you know, lawmakers aren't going to be back until January 2019 if things, you know, stay on course. Mm-hmm. And 
by then there are so many other issues that they're going to be dealing with Harvey being sort of the principal one it's it's hard to see this sort of being the first thing that they try to tackle particularly when it comes because they have to address big questions about how they get out of policing themselves and i don't think anyone's going to be eager to I'm, get to that i've wondered about the timing here you know we're, we've got this uh thing cresting more or less as a as a public question right before primaries but it doesn't seem to be an issue in anybody's yeah. race in particular so it's not like you know blake farenthold's not going to be on the ballot so we don't get to talk about it there it's not doesn't have that kind of presence so I've wondered, you know, what it would be like if everything was the same, but it was a year from now and we were mm -hmm. going right, right now into a legislative session with, you know, all of these things, both on a national level in particular, and then um, the noise at this point on the local level. And, I, and, I, and I'm not trying to diminish it by saying noise, but it, listening to that panel the other day, you, you couldn't, I didn't walk out with an impression that anything was going to happen. And mm -hmm. if anything was going to happen, what it might be. Yeah. Well, and the history of legislatures policing themselves is fraught with, um, you know, failure, basically. They, they right. typically, there's a lot of talk, and then, you know, when it comes right down to it, um, it they're the ones who would have to pass the laws right. or adopt the procedures that would punish themselves. And so they typically don't do that. They're much more willing to call out bad actors in other industries than in their or own. Or like course. local government, <laughs> for right. example. Because I think, I think if you went to the legislature and you got a secret ballot in there and you said, who are the bad eggs over here? Who's doing this? I think you'd probably get a pretty good list of names from the members who are supposed to be making the laws. But in terms of just you know ending the problem, they won't just name these folks and clean their house. Right. So, Alexa, both, as you alluded to, both chambers have been looking into this for a number of weeks. What's what's next for their work? I mean, what's on the horizon for the, the lawmakers that are specifically looking into this at the Capitol? Well, Charlie Guerin, who's the chair of the House Administration Committee, said he was going to ask for some sort of interim committee or panel work group of some sort that would keep looking at this issue and theoretically come up with recommendations. Um, Donna Howard, who I think everyone assumes would probably be on that committee because she's on the House Administration um, Committee and has been pretty vocal about this has said that nothing will probably happen until January 2019 because a lot of these things would probably require agreement from the whole chamber or any sort of change in statute. On the Senate side, we know that Lois Kolkhorst, who's the chair of their administration committee, is collecting recommendations to take to the lieutenant governor, but I don't know that anything's, we don't, we have no sort of assurance that anything will come from that. I mean, we've heard that people want to sure. at least enact a training for lawmakers, which the House has done, even though they can't actually require it of lawmakers. Um, but beyond that, I think everything's just sort of as, you know, in sort of this gray area that we were when all of this started. And, and beyond co the conversations that are happening around this, beyond the sort of acknowledgement and the very, you know, a much more vocal acknowledgement right. that this is actually a problem and that it's actually happening, um, and beyond sort of a couple of revisions to very, very outdated policies, I'm not sure what else will come from it. It's sure. otherwise, you know, other than that conversation, the law and regulation and policies are basically the same as they were a year ago or two years ago, right? Yeah, and I think, you know, at the panel yesterday, Senator Joan Huffman said, well, I, we're making this too complicated. I think we just need a, a zero tolerance. We need to create a zero tolerance culture. But, you know, that sort of inherently requires some sort of enforcement or sanction, yeah. some sort of right. accountability to it. And at this point, we're not seeing the creation of anything 
of that sort beyond trying to require lawmakers to go to a training that they can't actually require them to go to. We, we have a couple of questions coming in related to this topic, and we'll, we'll tackle them before we get to our final topic. Uh, Emmanuel asks, uh, where were all the male legislators during the hashtag MeToo event? Do at we, home, do we, at yeah. home under their beds. Were there any in the audience? I mean, did you see any engagement from... Um, it was an all-female panel, right? It was an all-female panel, and obviously that was intentional. Uh, the crowd was a mix of a female and male, and there were a lot of, you know, you could say capital players. There were consultants on both sides and staffers, but there were no male It lawmakers. was a much younger and more female crowd than you usually have at those kinds of events. Mm -hmm. And... Um, there were some chiefs of staff there for male lawmakers, but no male lawmakers. And I've got to say, I mean, yes, there have been male lawmakers who have said they want to revise policies, they want to make changes, but you haven't really seen anyone sort of at the forefront of this trying to really be a player in making those changes. A male like, lawmaker. A male lawmaker. I think, you know, beyond sort of Charlie Guerin and the leaders of both chambers who were sort of calling for changes and, you know, Charlie Guerin having right. being the chair of this committee, you haven't really seen male lawmakers step up and, and say, let's do this now, let's do this in a real yeah. way. The only one I can rem remember is uh, Trey Martinez-Fisher, who called for, uh, you know, sexual harassment training for political candidates this cycle. He has his right. own political campaign his this cycle. Political, right. yeah. So it was made right. in, in, the, in the context of that, but he's, he's at least one voice that I remember. Uh, one other question on this topic from Ash. What are some third-party groups that can investigate the legislators slash staff that commit sexual misconduct? Are there any? Um, not currently. I think, you know, what we've heard from lawmakers is do we create some sort of investigative body? Do we do what New York does where they, um, it's, I believe it's a college professor who is an expert in employment law who basically serves as their neutral investigator and counselor. Um, you know, there's a question, do we create something like the Ethics Commission that actually has some teeth? But I think huh. at the end of the day, there's a question of, you know... So, sorry for the chuckles. Right. <laughs> I think there's a question of what do you do with these... I think independent investigations, from what we've heard, would maybe go a long way in sort of boosting some confidence in the system. But there are still a lot of questions about what do you do with the results of these investigations yeah. in the system where, you know, you can't actually fire these people. Yeah, You well, do have the General Investigating and Ethics Committee which would have the jurisdiction they have like incredibly wide jurisdiction yeah, and subpoena do. power to do it if they want to but you know it could be a political hot potato you know too. part of this is governed by you know their experience with the travis county district attorney's office on public integrity issues is spotty at best and and i think Lodged. if you're a legislator and i think it, that was pretty charitable wasn't it yeah. um, i think if you're a legislator you look at that and say well you know that clearly doesn't work why would it work on sexual harassment and you know i think there's some yeah some basis for some skittishness on that. One final question on this from our friend uh, Jim Henson. So does everyone's reporting on this suggest that there is any constituent slash public pressure on legislators on these issues, being sexual harassment, sexual misconduct? The assumption that there is some kind of pressure slash demand out there seemed to underline some of the discussion on Tuesday's panel. Were, were you hearing that from the lawmakers, Alexa? I mean, were they talking about this as an issue that they're hearing from their constituents on or back home in their district? Uh, you know, not necessarily. Yeah. I think you hear a lot about the pressure to do something, one, because there's momentum to do something now, because there's right. sort of national reckoning. I don't know how many lawmakers are going home and hearing from their constituents saying, you need to fix these policies at the Capitol. Right. And, you know, we sort of close the panel thinking about what there is to do in other workplaces. And I think that's where you would maybe hear from constituents dealing with issues where they need some help but again this is such a this is such a sensitive and difficult issue for people who have very little power in most of these situations that I don't anticipate that you'd have 
folks coming forward to their lawmakers about issues in their workplace. I mean, you have advocacy groups that are definitely trying to capitalize on this momentum and hoping for some real change. I just don't know that there's enough pressure from constituents and you know, let's face it, primary voters to actually do something about it. On the other hand, why is Blake Farenthold not running for office? I mean, I think, you know, they look at this and they go, you know, you can't get through a primary with that one. You can't argue this one through a primary. Get out of the way. Whether he decided that on his own, whether he decided it with advice from, you know, Republican elders and colleagues or whatever, you know, there's clearly a disincentive to run with on, on this issue. And I think any legislator whose name was on something like this, um, yeah. would potentially have a big a big problem in, oh, in a Democratic problem, or a Republican primary. Absolutely. But the, think about the Blake situation, how much was out there right. and how long it was out there before he took his name off of the primary ballot. And I think in right. most cases, you know, you can't sort of work off of this theoretical problem and sort of acknowledging how hard it is for someone to come forward. You know, you're, you're not going to have a list of names that's going to push people to get off a of private. It takes a lot. Right. So, as well, we've and, seen and, that. You know, right. uh, tens of thousands of dollars in taxpayer money, too, was was used in that particular right. yeah, situation. That's a distinct and angle on that. It's not, it's that, not right. the sex, it's, it's the spending. Well, and when he when he came <laughs> out and said, people. I can't talk about it, I was like, that, yeah. that answer is going to last maybe 24 hours. Yeah, you know? yeah, before the end of the day. All right. In our, our final uh, five minutes here, I want to talk about what we uh, briefly uh, were asked about earlier in the Tripcast, which is the gubernatorial race. Uh, on the Democratic side, we're starting to see some action, action maybe being a bit of a charitable term. Uh, you know, we had Lupe Valdez, the, the former uh, Dallas County Sheriff, hold a, a kickoff event in right. her hometown of Dallas on Sunday. She had announced about a month ago. Um, and then you had the first, um, you know, real candidate forum, all 10 Democrats running for governor uh, on one stage in San Angelo on Monday. Don't know how closely we were all watching these events, but are are you guys are we starting to learn anything about this this scrum of candidates that are running for governor on, on the on the Democratic side? I, you know, I think the hardest challenge for every one of these candidates is going to be getting sufficient name ID to outrun the other nine candidates on the ballot. Lupe Valdez has an advantage in that she's been a countywide. Um, she's been in four countywide elections in the state's second biggest county. And that probably helps in a field of candidates where nobody else has been on any ballot at all. She also has a great bio. I mean, her, her, right. her story, you know, uh, sort of pulling herself up from the bootstraps and right. growing up really poor. She's Hispanic. Um, I mean, she has a lot in her biography that, that's, that's compelling and interesting to read. I mean, and she's, she's minim- wasted no time emphasizing it, too. Right. It's been a big right. chunk of all her public remarks so right. far. At a minimum, you know, she might have something going for her having a Spanish-sounding surname. If you go back and look at the 2014 primary where Wendy Davis lost a bunch of border counties to, you know, Ray Madrigal, who no one knew and, no, right. and hadn't campaigned once. You know, at a minimum, I'm pretty sure she's the only one in that pool of primary candidates that has a Spanish sounding surname. So she's right. got that. What, what about the non there. the non Lupe candidates? You, you think uh, about these nine other folks? You, you know, I, I think about Andrew White and I think um, one could make the argument that he would be a better candidate in the general election. He's making that argument himself. Yeah. Right, right. Um, but um, it just seems like it's not a, make that but, but but he said you know he basically said at one point I can't remember what the exact quote was but I'm either a, a you know a liberal Republican or a moderate Republican or a conservative Democrat or he said something like that that doesn't seem to be a good message you know that he is not so sure about his Democratic credentials in a way mm-hmm. um, that he you know being super bipartisan and all that and I think in this atmosphere with Trump in the White House um, that 
um, you know, reaching out across the aisle would work very well, very, very well in a general election, not right. so well in a primary. So I think he's going to have a hard time with that. But what do I know? You know, and there's a number there are a number of other candidates, two or three that have right. some actual money that they could throw into this race. So in a contest where you're really just trying to find some means of if you have a biography, getting that biography out or just getting somebody right. when they walk into a booth to go, oh, I've heard of that candidate or I've heard of this candidate. Uh, the people who've been on the ballot before, like the Lupe Valdez, are the people who have enough money to get their names in front of a, a meaningful number of Democratic primary voters are going to have an edge. Right. One final question. I know we're running out of time here. Ash, uh, again, asks, uh, do we think Lupe is the front runner at this point? Who are there been any polls or anything? Been, um, you know. No polling. Um, I think if the election were held tomorrow, she would win just based on the fact she's from Dallas County. She has the highest name ID in that group. Right. If you um, get it, we have a camp. You know, yeah. We should maybe win the most primary. votes. I mean, is right. it safe to say that this is not going to go into a that runoff primary just election? Because there are so many yeah. candidates. Yeah, I can't imagine. I you know I wouldn't be yeah. a little bit surprised if there wasn't a runoff. Yeah. In this and race. there there are a number of events already on the books in the future, not just in San Angelo on Monday, where all these candidates are going to be together. It'll be interesting to see what contrasts come out. There wasn't a lot of, uh, you know combat on the stage on, on Monday. I imagine that could change as we get closer to the to the primary. Right. Okay, great. Well, that's all the time we have. If you like listening to the TribCast every week, please do us a favor and leave us a review on iTunes. Those ratings help us reach more listeners like you. And if you value the Tribune's nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom, please consider making a donation at support.texastribune.org. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music. On behalf of Ross, Jay, Alexa, and our producers Todd and Bobby, this is Patrick. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. We, we lit a dumpster, like we burned dumpsters and... <laughs>